Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm Julian Marshall. Coming up, we'll have the uh, latest from our correspondent in Moscow as a Russian helicopter is shot down over Syria. Also in today's programme, local elections in South Africa and a litmus test for the ruling ANC and its leader, President Jacob Zuma. I think whatever happens in this election, no matter how much losses the the NC suffers, uh, overall, I don't think it's going to affect the president. I think he will survive. And the young people benefiting from President Obama's African Young Leaders Initiative. The way he's brought the world together, the way he's changed the perception of America from the way it was eight years ago. I was not a big fan of America uh, before, but with Obama coming in and looking at his policies and even looking at his heart, I, I think he's done a great job. That's all to come. But we begin in Syria, where a Russian military helicopter has been shot down in Idlib province in the north of the country. Rebels made the claim first, posting uh, graphic images of the wreckage online. It was then confirmed uh, by the Russian Defence Ministry, which said all five of those on board had been killed. This is the sound of people celebrating at the sight of the downed helicopter. The Russians say that the helicopter had been delivering humanitarian aid to the city of Aleppo, where last week the Syrian government and its Russian allies offered safe passage to the uh, tens of thousands of civilians trapped in the rebel-controlled east. And over the weekend, the rebels launched a counter-offensive against government positions in the west. Let's hear first from the BBC's Steve Rosenberg in Moscow. This is what the the Russian Defence Ministry is saying, that a a Russian Mi-8 transport helicopter um, had been delivering humanitarian aid today to the city of Aleppo. Uh, And on its way back to the the main Russian airbase, Khmeimim airbase in Syria, uh, the helicopter was shot down, passing over Idlib province. Uh, The ministry says that there were five people on board, that's three crew members and two officers. We've had some comment from the Kremlin uh, as well today. President Putin's spokesman said this was tragic news, and he said that according to his information, everyone on board that helicopter uh, had been killed. Uh, he described the servicemen as heroes because he said they'd had tried to avoid further casualties uh, on, on the ground. How usual is it, Steve, for the Russians to um, admit military losses in Syria? They have admitted military losses. There have been losses, and the Russians have talked about them. I think just a few weeks ago, so-called Islamic State militants brought down a, a military helicopter. Two Russian pilots were killed then. There was a, another case back in April when uh, a Mi-28 helicop- helicopter crashed near Homs, and two people were killed then. So there have been losses, and the Russians talk about them, but it's very painful uh, for them to do so. And for months, uh, the Russians had presented their military operation in Syria as uh, pretty much a success. And at one point, of course, Vladimir Putin had almost uh, declared it over and had said he was bringing back the bulk of the troops. But clearly, the Russians continue to have a large contingent in Syria. The the, the defence ministry says that... uh, Today's helicopter was involved in a humanitarian operation, but we know that offensive operations are continuing too. This operation is far from over. Steve Rosenberg in Moscow. I've also been speaking to Zuhair, a rebel activist in eastern Aleppo. He told me that the local rebel news agencies also confirmed that the helicopter was carrying humanitarian aid. Many agencies here to say that uh, the helicopter was uh, holding and uh, 
having uh, medical aid and food as well, but uh, they are not delivering it uh, to rebel health area to, to the civilian here in the eastern Aleppo, which uh, have been besieged uh, uh, since uh, two weeks and, and more. They were heading to one of the Assad's regime bases uh, on the southern east of Aleppo. The rebels uh, said that in their media's uh, site that uh, they saw, thought that it was, as usual, a bombardment of a helicopter uh, heading to, to shoot people and civilian areas. Uh, so they took it down by anti-helicopter anti machine gun. They were holding food and uh, medical aid, but uh, it was in Aleppo's sky, so it would be a target. That was uh, Zuhair, an activist in rebel-held eastern Aleppo. And with me in the studio in London, the BBC's Arabic affairs editor, uh, Sebastian Usher. Uh, tell me first about these uh, images of the crash that the rebels have posted online. Well, there are a number of I- images uh, and also live uh, footage that was shown before, as we were hearing from Stephen Rosenberg there, before the Russian Defence Ministry confirmed that it had come down, it shows in a desert area the aftermath with uh, the helicopter in flames completely destroyed. I think the bit which will be most disturbing for the Russians, the officials, and I think public mood there, is that you see some of the bodies. You see one body, which may be the pilot. uh, His chest is naked. He's lying bloodied on a pickup truck, his head hanging down. Um, There's an image of uh, what seems to be a man in uniform, uh, a a dead body being dragged along the desert ground. And most disturbing of all, there's, as I say, in a video, uh, there's there's, there's a sequence where there are two bodies that are lying on the ground face down and one of them is being uh, walked on, trampled on, I think you could say, by one of the crowd that has come around, whether they're all rebels or people who've come from around to see what's going on. But it looks like the body is actually being trampled. That, I think, will cause a lot of outrage, obviously, in Moscow. Is there any kind of protocol, do you know, in uh, Syria for marking and distinguishing between military and humanitarian aircraft? I think that's a very difficult thing, as we were hearing there from the activist in Aleppo. I think that the presumption is, as far as Russian and government uh, helicopters and planes are concerned, is that they are that that it's a military operation. Now, there have been humanitarian uh, helicopter flights by uh, the Russians recently to areas in and around Aleppo. But the area of Aleppo on the west, where there's a far bigger number of people and it's uh, the government area, isn't closed off. It isn't besieged. So there isn't the same necessity to fly in aid by helicopter. So I think there isn't any protocol in those terms that's been established. If the Russians uh, pursue this humanitarian uh, adventure that they're doing, which is more to do the eastern side. It's more to do with saying that the rebels there must surrender and civilians be allowed out rather than bringing aid in. Then I think there will have to be some way of doing that. But I think almost impossible in such a confused situation with so many different rebel groups involved. And Sebastian, over the weekend, uh, the rebels made some sort of attempt to try to break the siege of the eastern Aleppo. Yes, they did. What they what they tried to do was actually to take over one of the supply routes that goes over to the western side. So to put the pressure back on the government side, because essentially in the last month or so, we've seen the eastern side, the districts that are still held where they've estimated about 200, 250,000 civilians left, the rebel side, completely under siege, completely cut off as far as supply routes are concerned. Uh, that 
was almost seen as the end, the death knell for the rebels there. This is an attempt by them. There are a couple of suicide bombs used to force their way out to put the pressure back on the government forces and the government-held area. Sebastian, many thanks for that. That was the BBC's uh, Arabic Affairs editor, Sebastian Usher. Local elections are taking place this week in South Africa. They matter because they're a test for the governing ANC and its leader, President Jacob Zuma, who so far has managed to ride out the many scandals of his leadership. Whilst the bulk of the ANC's support comes from the rural areas, the opposition parties in the big urban centres appear to be picking up support from disenchanted former Zuma supporters. In fact, opinion polls suggest that the ANC could lose control of the capital Pretoria. Nomsa Maseko reports from Johannesburg. The African National Congress the party of Nelson Mandela, which brought democracy to South Africa. It came in on a wave of hope, but now faces its biggest challenge in 22 years. Massive unemployment and growing discontent over the lack of basic services has angered many. Violent protests are a weekly occurrence. Corruption scandals surrounding Jacob Zuma's presidency have dented the party's reputation, particularly the overspend of taxpayers' money to renovate his private home in Gandla. Even some of the most loyal and senior ANC members are speaking out. Matthews Porsa is the ANC's former treasurer. You've supported President Jacob Zuma in the past. What has changed between then and now? Many things have changed. There's no in Gandla when we supported him. We knew less about Zuma being corrupt than we know today. I mean, I've known Zuma for more than 43 years, and I admired him and I respected him, and indeed we supported him at that time. But uh, in, in a political situation, you always have to read what's happening and not be in denial. If something goes wrong, you will want it to be corrected. Opinion polls suggest the ANC could see its largest drop in votes in these local elections than in any other election since 1994. Significantly, Opposition coalitions could take over the running of major cities like the capital, Pretoria. The Democratic Alliance's Musi Maimana's supporters are confident the party will do well in these elections. I'm voting DA for a change, but before I voted for ANC, but I don't, I'm not going to vote for ANC. Again. Why did you change your mind? I changed my mind because there's no jobs, people, they're homeless. I, I think uh, DA is a better party for South Africa. Uh, because uh, we've been voting for your African National Congress for a long time. Then it's done nothing. The ANC's Zizi Godwa disagrees with this, saying the party has built more than 3 million low-cost homes for the poor and ensured that water and electricity are widely accessible to the majority. People are no longer talking about lack of service delivery. It's about quality of service. For example, in an area where we've delivered uh, overwhelmingly human settlement provision of houses. You find people in a housing area, RTP area, they are complaining, not complaining about houses, they are complaining about the tap is outside the house. The tap, they want the tap to be inside. So it's a quality of service. What it says is that people appreciate that we have done so much, but in some areas we do face challenges. Some ANC insiders have called for Mr. Zuma to step down, but they remain a minority. Matthews Porser again.
I think it is the NC's call to, to listen to their own conscience and say, do we want him to survive until 2019? It is also his responsibility to say, every day I hop from one scandal to the other, real or perceived, is that how I want to leave a legacy in the NC. As South Africa's political landscape matures into a competitive multi-party democracy, the romanticism with the ANC could begin to wear off. The 2019 national elections may see the party losing its majority for the first time. Namsa Maseko reporting from South Africa on the um, upcoming local elections which are being seen as a test for the governing ANC and its leader, President Jacob Zuma. Coming up, what are American forces up to in Afghanistan's southern Helmand province? Our reporter is with them. At night, the U.S. troops fire illumination rounds to ensure their base is secure. They now occupy a tiny corner of the old Camp Bastion, which is now a ghost town. Britain's not turned its back on Afghanistan. There are still 500 U.K. troops in Kabul. But in Helmand, it's been left to the Americans to complete the mission. The headlines, though this are, Russia says one of its military helicopters on a humanitarian mission in Syria has been shot down, killing all five people on board. And Turkey's security forces have captured a group of fugitive soldiers suspected of involvement in last month's failed coup attempt. We'll have uh, more details of that later in the programme. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall. Fury at Dave's gongs for his cronies is the headline in one British newspaper today and that translates loosely as a row has broken out over the way in which the former Prime Minister David Cameron has rewarded personal aides, political donors and ministers who campaign for Britain to remain in the European Union with honours. It's the custom for British Prime Ministers when they leave office to publish a list of honours, that's to say peerages, knighthoods, CBEs, OBEs. Uh, Mr Cameron's recommendations have been leaked to the media and he's facing charges of cronyism and uh, once again calls for an overhaul of the honours system. Joining me on the line now is Michael White of London's uh, Guardian uh, newspaper. And, uh, Michael, just setting aside for the moment the rights and wrongs of what Mr Cameron has done, uh, patronage has long been a feature of uh, British political life, has it not? Well, it certainly has, but it's long been a feature of everybody else's political life too. Uh, The American political system runs on patronage. Senior officials are appointed and unappointed when leadership changes. So it's not just us. Uh, and that's always important to say. Uh, and um, uh, the sort of thing that Cameron has done today, personally, I think he's he's overdone it a bit because he's not recognised that times have changed and the public is much more sceptical towards traditional ways of doing politics. Uh, and um, he's uh, been caught out a bit. But I have to say, previous prime ministers, some of them have done similar things. I was looking them up this morning. Mr White? 
Yes. You're still there, sir. Sorry, yes. I thought uh, we'd, the, the line had dropped out. Um, but it's not as blatant as uh, Britain's First World War Prime Minister, Lloyd George, who actually sold honours. Yes, and he wasn't the only one to do it too. He was the one who got caught out. Uh, his moneybags man called Maundy Gregory, not a name you forget, uh, had um, uh, actually written a letter to somebody with a price attached to it. And, of course, a letter is real evidence. But in the old days, it was done by a nod and a wink. And uh, sometimes you'd make a major donation to a major party and a few years later you'd get a, an award for services to charity and you had to do charitable work as well. So the, the link is not a blatantly direct one, but it's always been there and has been it for a very long time indeed. And the OBE, I understand, was introduced in 1917 to enable people with less money uh, to get some letters after their names? Well, that's a detail I didn't know, but it all it all fits in. Um, I should say, in fairness to the honours system, that they've tried to modernise it in recent years. We still get stuck with an OBE stands for the Order of the British Empire. Well, the British Empire hasn't been around for a long time. I always think, that, why don't they change it to Enterprise, OBE? But mainly nowadays they go to people who do good works in hospitals, in local government, uh, other walks of life, actors... Uh, um, show business people, sports people, and the exceptional ones get knighthoods and occasionally peerages. But um, as in most countries, it's pretty harmless as long as it's not corrupt and it's reasonably fair. So where do you draw the line between fairness and corruption? Well, uh, the case which has been on um, everybody's lips in Britain today is 1976, retiring Prime Minister Harold Wilson, uh, like David Cameron today, issues a list. It was written on his political secretary's lavender notepaper pad, the lavender list, and it contained some very dodgy customers, one of whom later committed suicide while under investigation. Another one was sent to prison. Um, uh, but again, if you look at these old lists, you'll find the chauffeur at number 10 Downing Street or the messenger boy uh, uh, or some of the secretaries, quite low-down officials. Or a stylist. Oh, well, yes, but <laughs> I don't begrudge her. Some people have got cross about the, the woman who has been doing Mrs Cameron's hair for five years, but modern newspapers and TV and social media too... That's not okay. uh, 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 leaving. They're, they're merciless if the stylist had got the hair wrong. Michael, many thanks. Michael White of the uh, Guardian newspaper here in London. The London trader who lost the Swiss bank UBS over $2 billion in unauthorised trading has apologised and uh, warned that his crimes could be repeated. Uh, Kweku Adaboli was jailed for seven years in 2012 for the biggest fraud in British history. He was released early in 2015 and is now appealing against being deported from the United Kingdom to his country of birth, Ghana. Kwekwadaboli has been talking to our economics editor, Kamal Ahmed. Do you think that as part of that redemption you need to apologise at all for what happened, what you did? Absolutely, and I have apologised and I will continue apologising. I am devastated not for myself but for my institution and the people I worked with. The very first thing I did when I was first arrested was say I am sorry beyond words. I said it through my lawyers but that is what I said. During my trial I said I was sorry repeatedly and I wasn't, these are not just devices, it's how I feel. I failed. I made mistakes. 
Do you think that the culture that you found yourself in um, has changed now and that it couldn't happen again? Unfortunately, I have to say that the, ex the conversations I've had with people in the industry over the last year, through the conferences I've spoken at, the seminars I've been involved with, everyone, the young traders, the senior executives, everyone in the industry is looking, still looking for a way to change culture within the industry. We still have so much work to do to get the finance industry in a position where it's trusted by society, that it's contributing something consistently that helps society move forward in a positive way. Has behaviour changed in banking enough? No, absolutely not. Um, I think the young people I've spoken to, former colleagues I've spoken to, are still struggling with the same issues, the same conflicts, the same pressures to achieve no matter what. And we know where conflict goes. Where the conflict comes is where people fall into this grey zone. And so I think it can absolutely happen again, especially as we go into what could possibly be the next phase of the great financial crisis over the next sort of 12 to 18 to 24 months. And looking back now, do you think of yourself as a criminal? Um, I don't think I'm a criminal. It's a label that I have. Um, you made a terrible mistake. You made a, a sequence of terrible choices. But your intentions were always in the right place. I accept that I was found guilty of a crime that had dishonesty central to it. You were called a liar in the I trial. was called a liar, and I accept that I lied. I accept that I was dishonest in the way in which I was doing what I was doing. I mean, how did, you know, the son of a senior figure in the United Nations, who went to a well-renowned Quaker school, end up being photographed in handcuffs being taken to and from court and ended up in prison. I, it was a shock. Um, what was most difficult for me was um, thinking about my friends and family um, and how they were perceiving it. Throughout the entire process, you stop thinking about yourself. Um, or maybe that's just the way I'm built. But my concern was never about me. It was never about the pain or the embarrassment or the, the things that were being said about me. It was the impact that those things had on my friends and family. That was the thing that was most difficult. That was Kweku Adaboli, the London trader who lost the Swiss bank UBS over $2 billion in unauthorised trading. Speaking there to our economics editor, Kamal Ahmed. Coming up next, we hear about the capture of a group of rebel Turkish soldiers accused of trying to seize the president during last month's coup. But first, our regular look at the world of business. And OPEC's new secretary-general began his job today. Nigeria's Mohamed Senussi Barkindo succeeds Abdallah Salam El-Badri, a Libyan 
who has headed the organization since 2007. Mr. Barkindo is an oil industry veteran. He's a former head of Nigeria's National Petroleum Corporation and has served a stint as acting OPEC Secretary General. He takes over when oil is trading around $40 a barrel. Anjali Raval is the oil and gas correspondent for the Financial Times newspaper. Uh, She explained to me what OPEC does. OPEC traditionally has come together in order to cut supply or increase supply depending on the market environment. Their traditional role has been to ensure that there is income for all of those participants of the group and they have tried to support the oil market when in its time of need. Now, two years ago, OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia and uh, its then oil minister, Ali al-Naimi, decided that even though the, the oil price was falling, the group would not cut production to support the oil market. Their response was due to a structural shift in the oil market and participants outside of the group that were really having a bigger role. For example, the US and its shale production, as well as Russia, for example. And they didn't want to lose their market share by cutting their own supply for the benefit of others. OPEC's got a new Nigerian secretary general, but will he be running the show or from what you are saying, is it the Saudis who are basically in charge? The new Secretary General is a is an, a low profile gentleman. You know, he's an old OPEC hand. He knows how things work. He he used to be the head of Nigeria's state oil company. Most people believe this is the largely administrative role that he has. It's not like he can change OPEC policy, and nobody really seems to think that there will be any change to the strategy of the group. But it is significant that he has been selected. It took a long time to come to an agreement over who would be the next Secretary General. Is OPEC uh, as influential as it once was? All the OPEC producer countries, I think they do believe in the value of being part of the organisation. Let's remember, you know, even with the rise of US shale, the US is still a big net importer and it will rely on oil, particularly from the Middle East, for the foreseeable future. So what do you see happening to the price of oil in the uh, medium and long term? Today's prices still hover around $40 a barrel. Now, this is very tricky for uh, some of the economically weaker members of OPEC, such as Venezuela or Nigeria or even Libya. And, And we now sort of see OPEC still continue to be split into sort of two groups, you know, the set of countries that are doing better economically versus those that aren't. And that's that's the, the new struggle. And I don't envy uh, the new Secretary General because it's not the easiest time to join the group. That was um, Anjali Raval, the oil and gas correspondent of the Financial Times newspaper. You're listening to the BBC World Service. I'm Julian Marshall. This is NewsR. To Taiwan now, where long before Han Chinese started emigrating from the mainland in the 17th century, the island had been inhabited for thousands of years by a variety of tribes. Uh, The indigenous population has long been overwhelmed by the Chinese. They now make up just 2% of the population and over the centuries have lost their ancestral land rights while their traditional lifestyles have been restricted. And uh, President Tsai Ing-wen has become Taiwan's first ever leader to apologise for the suffering they've endured. I've been speaking to uh, DPP legislator Kulas, a prominent supporter of Aborigi- Aboriginal rights and herself one of the Amos people. 
I asked her first how many indigenous tribes there were in Taiwan. We have 16 different indigenous peoples that are officially recognized by the government. And where do the indigenous peoples live now in Taiwan? Most of the indigenous peoples are from the eastern and southern Taiwan. But in the past 50 years, people moved to the cities from the west. And how is life for them? Um, Because the president has apologized for 400 years of suffering and injustice. Is that historic suffering and injustice or is it still happening today? I have to say the long colonized rule of Taiwan has negatively impacted its indigenous peoples. In the past, we have lost our lands, our lives, our languages. All the while in the history books, we have been made look like savages. Our unemployment is higher than the rest of the nation by 1% to 2%. Our life expectancy is lower by 10 years. Two-thirds of our traditional land have been taken away by the state. Over a 100 of our hunters are put in jail due to poorly legislated hunting laws. So we must demand the government to sincerely apologize and to earnestly start fixing these problems. So you are saying you are effectively second-class citizens. Yes. And yet you yourself have been able to become a legislator. (laughs) Yes. And was that difficult? It's still unbelievable. (laughs) I was a journalist. I uh, have been a journalist for more than 15 years. But I think it's the beautiful part of Taiwan too. Since the president has indigenous blood. I think she knows much better about indigenous people than other presidents we had ever had. So I think she focused more on indigenous issues and she picked me as legislator at large. From what you have been saying, it's it's clear that you believe that this apology is long overdue. But would you hope that it was followed by action? Yes, we have been victims of discrimination and injustice in this Han Chinese society. So this morning, the apology from the president represents the government recognizing its wrongdoings in the past, allowing the indigenous peoples to reclaim our dignity and to be fairly compensated. The apology shows that the government is willing to take the first step to face the problem of its indigenous peoples. And people hope that the government will come up with new indigenous policies. Such as? Such as our chance to get uh, educated, to find a good job in the city, housing problems we are facing, or losing languages. These are all the challenges we are facing now. The president's apology, I would imagine, is going to make the government in mainland China quite angry. It looks upon Taiwan <laughs> as, as a part of China. But um, the president, the Taiwanese president, is acknowledging that the island was colonised. Taiwan is an independent country for most of Taiwanese people. In our point of view, we are a country. We are never part of China. Focusing more on indigenous peoples always makes China nervous. But I think that's 
what the president should do to let people know we do have indigenous peoples in Taiwan. That's the fact. That was Kolas, uh, Taiwanese legislator and uh, member of the island's indigenous community. The Turkish government is continuing to pursue those it says were involved in last month's failed coup and also uh, to counter criticism there's been in Western capitals of the scale of the purge it's carrying out against its perceived critics. Thousands of members of the Turkish armed forces have either been detained or relieved of their posts and the government says it's now captured a group of soldiers accused of trying to seize President Erdogan during the coup attempt. Let's cross to Istanbul and the BBC's Jonathan Head. And, uh, Jonathan, the president at the time uh, of this failed coup was in uh, the resort town of Marmaris, wasn't he? He was. He was on holiday. Um, and I think he was only tipped off very, very close to the moment when this team of commando soldiers headed to his hotel. We believe there was only about an hour in it when the president was whisked away quickly by his security team somewhere else. These commandos showed up. He wasn't there. And once the coup failed, they dispersed into the... Uh, forests and countryside around Marmaris. And this manhunt for them has been going on ever since then. And they, over the weekend, they've caught all the last 11, except for one. There's one still at large. So in a way, what we're seeing is the very last of the military operations to suppress uh, the coup makers. Of course, the much bigger job now for the Turkish government in its own mind is to weed out those it says were organized or behind the coup. And that, of course, is this a huge movement known as Fethullah Gulen, which has hundreds of thousands of followers in Turkey, and that's going to be a much more complex task. In the meantime, the government, Jonathan, also very angry about an incident in Germany yesterday when a court decision effectively stopped uh, President Erdogan from addressing uh, supporters in Cologne via uh, a video link. Over the weekend, we spoke to German Green uh, Party uh, MP Cem Uzdemir, who's of uh, Turkish descent, and he explained the ban. You can demonstrate in favor or against Erdogan, but you have to stick to our constitution. You have to stick to our laws. Um, it's not up to me to comment on demonstrations, but uh, let me say, since uh, you quoted some of the demonstrators, we all condemned the military coup, but we also condemned the civil coup that took place after the military coup. Uh, what Mr. Erdogan is doing right now, that people get tortured again, people lose their jobs, not based on court decisions, based on decisions uh, by Mr. Erdogan. And uh, Jonathan, how has the Turkish government reacted to that uh, ban? Well, very angrily. They say it's inconsistent with other things that have happened in the past. People have been allowed to speak. They've described it as an attack on freedom of expression. But I think beyond their initial very angry reaction behind that is a good deal of, of disappointment and frustration over what the government perceives is a less than wholehearted uh, support from its Western partners during the coup. Now, you know, a lot of this might be perception. A lot of it might be, to some degree, just playing the diplomatic game. But in the first 48 hours after the coup, it was such an astonishing event. I don't think many people outside, let alone inside Turkey, really knew what was behind it and what was going on. And a lot of, the, you know, there was a lot of very nuanced comment condemning an attempted coup, but nobody quite sure who was behind it. There was a belief it's largely been discredited now that perhaps President Erdogan was behind the coup himself. So the Turks feel they haven't had the support they want. They feel not properly backed by their Western partners. This is a government that has been very badly shaken by what's happened. And I think we're seeing that in the diplomacy. And of course, it's not just Germany. And of course, we've got this massive deal on migrants that is very fragile at the moment between the EU and Turkey, which may be 
uh, threatened by this tension. But okay. you've also got the United States, which hosts Fethullah Gulen, that the, the leader okay. they want extradited and hasn't, you know, they don't know how long that's going to take. So it's a very difficult time at the moment for Turkey's partners. Jonathan, many thanks. Jonathan Head there in Istanbul. The Taliban struck in the Afghan capital, Kabul, overnight, uh, a compound housing foreign contractors on the outskirts of the city. Uh, was attacked. Three lives were lost, a police officer and two attackers. The assault on the capital is further evidence of growing insecurity in Afghanistan. A U.S. government report says the Afghan government has lost 5% of its territory uh, to the Taliban over the past year, including advances in Helmand province. Our defence correspondent Jonathan Beale has this report from Helmand. See how when you shoot it's going to recoil? See how you're real stable? That's what you want. Almost two years after the British left, and American soldiers are back in Helmand. Right, let's try that again, guys. 500 US troops returned at the start of this year, doing much the same as the British did before them, sometimes training the very same soldiers. So, what went wrong? General Andrew Rowling is the US commander in Helmand. I honestly can't speak how they left in 2014. Uh, I would suspect, though, that people thought they were on the right track. Um, And then they kind of, for a million different reasons, things just didn't go in the direction they had hoped to. And and so we've had to help prop it back up over the the last year. But if we didn't have the the British and the Marine involvement over here in Helmand, we'd have been starting from zero. I think they made decisions based on where they thought the elements were the strongest. But they were wrong. uh, I think that potentially. These passing out parades would have been a familiar sight to the British who left Helmand just under two years ago. But the army the British left has largely disappeared with mass desertions and casualties, forcing the Americans to return to rebuild the Afghan army. At the end of last year, it was down to one-third of its strength. There were even fears the whole of Helmand would fall. A U.S. intelligence officer, who we cannot name, says this year the situation's improved, but it still sounds remarkably similar to when the British and U.S. Marines were here. I think that the Taliban have the most influence in some areas like Sangin, Musakla, Marja, kind of the same areas that they've had more influence throughout the whole course of our time in Helmand. I don't think you can talk about Helmand without talking about the poppy harvest as one of the main provinces for producing poppy. There's a limit to what you can do here. Is, are you trying to tackle a poppy harvest or is that eradication of poppy just pointless? I, I don't know that it's pointless, but I know that we are not making any steps or strides to eradicating it. When David Cameron announced the withdrawal of UK forces, he said it was mission accomplished. But that's not the view of the newly installed governor of Helmand, Hayatullah Hayat. Well, I think this is not a a simple mission to be accomplished soon. And I think we definitely need the support of the international community to combat the terrorism. So you think the British left too early? I think so. Uh, The whole international community uh, left a bit earlier. At night, the U.S. troops fire illumination rounds to ensure their base is secure. They now occupy a tiny corner of the old Camp Bastion, which is now a ghost town.
Britain's not turned its back on Afghanistan, there are still 500 UK troops in Kabul. But in Helmand, it's been left to the Americans to complete the mission. And that uh, report from Afghanistan's Helmand uh, province by our defence correspondent, uh, Jonathan Beale. Here are the latest news headlines from the BBC Newsroom. A Russian helicopter has been uh, shot down by Syrian rebels south of Aleppo. We heard earlier on Newsar from Zuhir, an activist in the uh, rebel-held eastern sector of the city. The rebels said that they thought that it was, as usual, a bombardment of a helicopter uh, heading to, to shoot people and civilian areas. Uh, so they took it down by anti anti-helicopter machine gun. They were holding food and uh, medical aid, but uh, it was in Aleppo's sky, so it would be a target. Turkey's security forces have captured a group of fugitive soldiers suspected of involvement in last month's failed coup attempt. And the uh, U.S. taxi-hailing service, Uber, is uh, merging its loss-making business in China with a local rival in a multi-billion dollar deal. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. When Barack Obama took office in 2009, there were high hopes of this politician of Kenyan descent in sub-Saharan Africa. But as he nears the end of his presidency, there are those who say that he hasn't done as much for the continent as some of his predecessors. But President Obama can point to his Young African Leadership Initiative, which seeks to identify and help educate the next generation of leaders from sub-Saharan African countries. And today in Washington, a thousand of them will come together after six weeks of study and training across the U.S. for what's known as the Mandela Washington Fellowship for Young African Leaders Presidential Summit. Three of them got up early and went to the BBC's Washington Bureau for us. They are Epamba Kamfatua, a 26-year-old from Cameroon, 31-year-old Zambian Delisu Chitundu. Let's hear first from 25-year-old Zimbabwean Maximina Chipo Jukonya. I work in an HIV and AIDS organization. We provide counseling, psychosocial support, and we do vocational skills training for those who are living with HIV, especially the adolescents from the ages of 5 to 24 years. That's where my passion is. And Deliso, you're a farmer, would-be farmer? Yes, I'm actually a failed farmer, if I have to be accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of failing to farm, what are you doing instead? So right now, um, I'm running an agriculture communications company called Agricom. We work with development agencies, work with the government, work with seed companies, input suppliers to better communicate to farmers. What we do is use media. We use a television, radio, come with radio programs, radio adverts, documentaries to better serve the farmer. And Pamba, my notes tell me that you are a passionate feminist activist, but I understand that you have directed that passion into women's education. Yes. Well, I'm a Let Girls Learn ambassador, advocating the rights of young girls and women to education. I also have an organization called Clicks Cameroon, where we give access to women and young girls education and sexual reproductive health. We organize cultural events to bring community leaders together, religious leaders together to change the perception about girls' education. And presently, we are working on a project called Be Safe, 
control over my body. We teach young girls and women on how to calculate their menstrual cycle and teaching them how to make their own reusable part from their local materials in order for young girls to stay in school, they go up safe and healthy. And Maximina, yes. what have you learned in the last six weeks that is going to help you when you go home? The first lesson that I learned is when you have a purpose in life, it has to be driven from the passion that you have. I also learned about the importance of preserving your own history, where you come from and where you're going. This is also good for the next generation that is coming so that they also learn where are you coming from and where are you heading as well. For me, what I learned really was about leadership and really serving at the grassroots. But stay connected to the heart of things, and then everything else will follow. So we were at Purdue University, one of the best agriculture research universities. So getting that exposure was sort of seeing the future of agriculture. And when I go back home, I'm really going to implement strategies on connecting farmers to modern technologies and modern ways of doing things. And Dipamba, I was just wondering with you whether many of the things that you had learnt in the United States were perhaps too culturally specific to be able to take back home and apply in Cameroon, or not so? Well, I've learnt about the leadership style, the transformative leadership style. I've learnt a lot. It has boosted my leadership skills and given me another turnaround. So when I go back... I see that here they use a lot of art, they use culture, they use video, and they use a lot of social media to communicate and to get everybody involved at the grassroots level. I want to take it back to Cameroon so that I can involve more women and girls to improve on challenges that affect them so that they can develop their own solutions. How was it meeting American feminists? Well, it was really good. Like, we had a lecture on the rights of women, feminism. And after that, I had to write a blog on the rights of women on menstruation because menstruation is silent. It's an issue not only in Africa, it's an issue in the world. Why should that be silent? I heard about movements in human rights, voting rights of women, but there's no rights concerning menstruation, and it's a basic and necessary human rights of a woman. I mean, you were clearly very curious about the United States, but how curious were Americans about Africa? Were they about your own country, Zambia, Deliso? In, in West Lafayette, wonderful people, you know, and everyone that I met, you know, said, what, what is Africa like? What do you see that is different? You know, and, and the truth is people are not too different back home. <laughs> and so, Max, Maximina, did you find that uh, people were curious about Zimbabwe? They probably actually knew quite a bit about Zimbabwe, didn't they? Well, well the only thing that I could hear is how is Mugabe? So, you know, way my experience here to be defined by my president. And, yeah, it was quite something else. <laughs> and, Ipamba, you come from perhaps one of the lesser-known African countries. Yes, um, yes. Do people know where Cameroon was? Well, many people don't know. They don't have information about West Africa that much and Central Africa. But when I try to tell them about the cultural diversities, like we have a Mount Cameroon, we are one of the best in Africa in football, they call us the Lion of Africa in soccer. And we have a lot of natural resources. Many are really interested, and I have many of them. I want to come and volunteer. I want to come to Cameroon. I like being there. I told them that everybody is hospitable, like here in the United States. The perception that we got before coming here, we thought everyone would see gunshot, would be scared, but it's different. <laughs> I just want to ask you finally, I mean, when President Obama took office all those years ago, there were a lot of expectations from somebody who was of African descent, you know, that he would connect with the continent and the continent would benefit from his presidency. You three individuals clearly have from this fellowship. But I just wondered, 
what you've thought maybe of the state of US-Africa relations at the moment, Maximina. I think he has done a great job. Uh, one of the men that I admire so much. Back home in Zimbabwe, most of the funds that we receive are coming from the United States of America in terms of HIV and AIDS. So for me, he has delivered what we expected. And for me, being here talking to you is one of those evidence that he had done great work, actually. Epamba? So. My view is his record is absolutely good. Even back home in Africa, like in Cameroon, most of our grants, our funding, everything, like even now the fight of Boko Haram, the Americans are there fighting for us, for our peace. Glowing yes. tributes there from your two female colleagues. Are you going mm-hmm. to endorse them? <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I have to. Um, Obama has made great strides. The way he's brought the world together, the way he's changed the perception of America from the way it was eight years ago. I was not a big fan of America uh, before, but with Obama coming in and looking at his policies and even looking at his heart, I, I think he's done a great job. That is so Chitunda. We also heard from a Pamba Comfort tour and uh, Maximina Chipo-Chukonya. That's it from this edition of News Hour. From me, uh, Julian Marshall, and the rest of the team in London, goodbye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.